I know I've said it before, but today we really do have a special guest. A former economic hitman who then went to the jungle. Don't you love stories that start that way? Today he's going to share with us how touching the jaguar helped him learn and teach others to transcend fear and make a bigger difference in the world. Hi, it's Cheryl Sitz. Welcome back to Exploring Possibilities, where week after week we transform life from the inside out in holistic spiritual ways. We've been doing this since 2012. You'll find all our shows at journeyofpossibilities.com and new episodes also out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and a lot more popular apps. We want to keep all this content free and accessible to everyone, so please send us your contributions at journeyofpossibilities.com slash support. And next, John Perkins. Mario, your work has taken a new direction lately that's pretty exciting. Tell us about it. Thank you, Cheryl. One of the things that I do is remote support. And what does that mean? It's like I can train you on your website if you're needing to do some updates. I have a client of mine that they call me every so often and I remote into their computer and for two hours I show her how to do something on WordPress, on Wix, or maybe Microsoft Word or Microsoft Excel or even your email. And I have another client that I work with and they're having issues with their computers and I totally should like if Microsoft Word doesn't open or they can't get to a website. And sometimes I'm just doing maintenance. I check their uh, backups to make sure everything's working. I verify that the passwords are working properly, their emails working properly, virus scan, all of that remotely. I don't even have to go to your house. And during this whole lockdown, it keeps me safe, keeps you safe. And why not give it a shot? You can contact me at MarioVasalas.com and let me know how I can help you. John Perkins is an author and activist whose 10 books on global intrigue, shamanism, and transformation include the New York Times bestseller, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and the subject of today's topic, Touching the Jaguar. He's a frequent speaker at universities, economic forums, and shamanic gatherings, and founder and board member of the nonprofit organizations Pachamama Alliance and Dream Change. You can contact him online at johnperkins.org, and he joins us now. Hi, John. Hi, Cheryl. It's great to be with you. Wow, what an exciting honor to talk with you. I first discovered your work when I was heading to the jungle for the first time myself back in 2012, and it feels like it's coming full circle to me now to be able to actually connect with you. Thank you for all the work that you're doing to raise awareness and, and change the world. Well, I'd like to say you're welcome, but <laughs> it's, um, it's my pleasure. Yes, it's a great it's it's a it's a great life, and what could be more fun and more important and more ecstatic right now than than working on every individual making a better life for themselves and changing the world? And you, you mentioned the book Touching the Jaguar. The the subtitle is Transforming Fear into Action to Change Your Life in the World, and I think this is an amazing time for all of us to be doing exactly those two things. It sure is. It sure is. And and you live the example, which I appreciate, and you talk about that in the book. So it's one thing to read somebody that's got great theory, but somebody that's so raw and vulnerable about how you got your ahas and how it's come through for you, it's really empowering, and it's empowered me. So thank you for that. Well, thanks for saying it. You're welcome. So you talk about a lot of things in the book, but, um, you know, one I've marked a couple of places where I found it really impactful. Um, you talk about how perception shapes everything. And then you go into how you experienced that in a ceremony 
uh, at some point in plant medicine. I'm, I'm assuming that people know who you are. Um, that might be a leap, but I'm kind of doing that. If you don't know who John Perkins is, check it out. I'm going to jump into the meat of today's show, but definitely go to the website and learn more. Basically, you were part of the problem, and then your life changed when you went in the jungle and you became part of the solution of the way we were functioning in the world. Is that too much of a nutshell? You want to expand on that a little bit? <laughs> It was somewhat circular in that I, I first, so I graduated from business school, 1968, joined the Peace Corps, went into the jungle for, th- for two years. I lived in the Amazon rainforest in Ecuador with the with, with indig- an indigenous tri- group there called the, the, the Shua, and then another year high in the Andes, still in the Peace Corps with the Quechua people high in the Andes. And there's a story behind that, but in, in both ca- in those cases, I studied with shamans. The shaman saved my life in the Amazon right off at the beginning, and then I was trained by their shamans. And 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 the the, the biggest part of the training was that our reality, human reality, is totally molded and created by human perceptions. So when you think about it. You know, there's no United States, there's no Ecuador, there's no religion, there's no culture, there's no corporations, there's no economy, except as we perceive those things. And when enough people accept a perception or codify it into law, it has a huge impact on reality. That's what shamanism teaches you. It's also the basis for psychotherapy and for quantum physics and for marketing, (laughs) for corporations, for advertising. Perceptions mold reality. And, uh, you know, so. So I, I had that experience, and then I came out and did what I'd been taught to do in business school. I became an economist, a chief economist at an international consulting firm. I really did the work of an economic hitman. And at the beginning, I thought that the work I was doing was was good because we're, we're we're taught in business school, and the World Bank says that if you if you if you convince a country to take on huge debts and hire our corporations to build big infrastructure projects like power plants and highways and industrial parks in their country, then their economy will grow. And that was my job, was to convince these countries to do that. And in the process, our corporations make huge profits. The country goes deep into debt. And you can statistically show that the economy does grow when you invest in this infrastructure. So for the many years, I thought I was doing the right thing. But then I saw that those statistics lie. They're skewed toward the rich. They're not exactly a lie. They're skewed toward the rich. So, for example, in a country like the United States where three individuals have as much wealth as half the population, if those three individuals made 10% return on their investment last year and half the population lost 3%, we'd show an economic growth of around 3.5%, a growth. But only the rich were, 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 doing, were doing well. Right. The rest of us, half the population was doing really poorly. So after I saw that and understood that, I quit that job and went back to the Amazon. And that's when I really got into using that shamanic teaching to, 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 to do this thing of, of transfer, form, transforming a death economy into a life economy. And you it's do kind such, of a circular thing. <laughs> yes, it is a circular thing. You do such a great job of explaining death economy and life economy. But I want to kind of step back one moment. to I flagged a couple of things in your book that I wanted to use as examples. Because it kind of, we're talking about it in theory. I want to give a specific example out of the book. Many people that I've gone to Peru with have also been afraid of the food, afraid of the water, afraid of the bugs. Like we're kind of taught this fear. We're, we're very fear-based as people. And you talk about in the book your experience and then how the the medicine 
of the jungle taught you that it wasn't the food and drink that were killing you. It was your perception that they would kill you, that it was the fear that they would kill you and believing that that was making you sick. And, and where else do we do that in our lives? Right. Yeah. You know, that was a, yeah, that was that first experience. And I, it was in 1969. I was deep in the Amazon living in the in Schwa territory. I, I get very, very sick. I was dying. I couldn't keep any food down. I was a three day horrendous trip to the nearest medical facility, including a day of hiking through very dense jungle. Uh, I couldn't even stand up on my own. So there's no way I could do that. And that night a shaman offered to heal me. And, you know, I had never even heard of a shaman in 1969, graduated from business school. What's a shaman? But it was, it was my only option. So I accepted. And, you know, that night I had this amazing shamanic journey, a vision quest, uh, as you mentioned, it was it happened to be done on ayahuasca. It's not always done on ayahuasca. It doesn't have to be, but this one was. And I, I, as I'm in this vision quest late at night, I, I, I've got my eyes closed. I see this amorphous blob in front of me. And the shaman yells at me, touch the jaguar. <laughs> well, Cheryl, I'm in the middle of the jungle. It's dark night. I open my eyes. I look all around. Where's the jaguar? This is terrifying. <laughs> and he says, no, no, no. Close your eyes and see the jaguar. And this amorphous shape then shifted into a jaguar's face. And I heard a voice like my mother's saying, son, the food and drink will kill you. And I saw at that moment, you know, that I'm, I'm eating these very strange foods by my, in, in, in my culture. Like, things like they love, uh, delicacy is squirming white grubs live <laughs> down the hatch. <laughs> and in the Amazon... People don't drink river water because they know it's dangerous. The rivers are filled with organic matter, fallen trees, dead animals, etc. So the women make a kind of beer called chicha by chewing and spitting manioc root. And then it ferments into an alcohol and you can add water to that. And you drink a lot of it because you got to rehydrate. So I'm drinking a lot of spit beer <laughs> and eating swarming white rubs. <laughs> and I realized every time I ate these things or drank the spit beer, I heard a voice saying, it'll kill you. And at the same time, I saw how incredibly robust and healthy the Schwa people are. You know, they're hundreds of years. They're, 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 they're incredibly well-built. They're incredibly attractive people. They live to be very old if they don't die in a hunting accident or something like that. And so that night, I saw that it wasn't the food and drink killing me. It was my perception. And the next day, I was much better. And a few days later, the shaman came back to me and said, hey, you know, you owe me. <laughs> You've got to become my apprentice. And again, you know, 1969, there was no future in shamanism. I graduated from business school, no interest at all in doing that. But the guy saved my life. So I spent the next couple of years as his apprentice and, and learned a great deal. It was a life-changing experience for me. Yeah. So ayahuasca has become a very popular method for people to try and connect with something. That, and, and the typical American mindset, right, is that we can take a pill and make it better. So I want to go to, I, I want to drink some ayahuasca and my life's going to be better. I'm going to fix everything. And I think it's really important that we who have worked with it can kind of speak to that and say, there's a process and, and the ayahuasca is not the be all end all. It's really all the answers are inside of you. Can you speak a little bit to what your response is to people who want to know about ayahuasca and, and, Want to go the quick fix American route? <laughs> yeah, Cheryl, I'm really glad you brought that up. It's not a silver bullet. It's a great plant. I think there's a consciousness revolution occurring in the world. I have the, I'm blessed to, to travel all over. I was recently in Russia and China and Kazakhstan, all over Latin America, speaking at things. And, and everywhere I go, I see that people are waking up. 
to the fact that we, you know, we live on a very fragile space station and we're piloting it toward disaster mm-hmm. and we need to turn it around. We need to reboot it. And so there's this consciousness and the plant world, I think, is part of that. So ayahuasca is coming into play because it, it can help people to wake up. Um, vegetarianism, veganism, the plants are speaking to us loud and clear in so many, many different ways. And ayahuasca is one of those. I, you know, I was trained as an ayahuasca shaman back in those days. That's what that shaman trained me in. And it was very clear that this plant is only to be used upon occasions when you really need it. Uh, somebody asked me the other day, he said, yeah, I've taken ayahuasca 20 times in the last year. How many times have you taken it? Oh, wow. And I said, well, the last time I was 10 years ago, and I'm still processing that. Yes. Uh, and, you know, another, another, another fellow was on a trip to the Amazon with me. You know, I do these trips every year. Except this year, I didn't do this one uh, in August. And then he went to Guatemala with me in January. And I am doing a trip to Guatemala. I hope some of your listeners will come in 2021. In 2021. It's on my website, org. But so he, he did ayahuasca in the Amazon in August. He had a very powerful experience. He went to Guatemala with me with the Mayan shamans in January. And they don't do ayahuasca. They do these incredible fire ceremonies. And at the end of the trip, he made an announcement to the whole group. He said, you know, I had a powerful experience on ayahuasca, but I had a more powerful experience here on the fire ceremonies. So there are many ways for us to open. And ayahuasca is one of those. But I am concerned that I think it's becoming for some people a social addiction. I don't think it's not a physically addictive substance, they say, and I think that's true. But I think it can be a socially addictive substance where people say, well, I've got to do it, you know, next weekend. There's an ayahuasca party or, I, you know, I did it 20 times last year. How many times did you do it? And I think we have to be very, very careful with this plant. When we do use it, we need to use it in a very serious way and understand that it's just opening us to, as you said, to go deeper within ourselves. It's one of many methods, yoga, meditation, martial arts, uh, all kinds of things. In the, in the book, uh, Touching the Jaguar, I talk about a daily practice that's less than 10 minutes a day that we each can do, which is taking us in that same route. So this, you know, and again, I'm not knocking the plant. It's a beautiful plant, and I think it's coming into our consciousness right now for a very good reason, as are many, many other things. Yes, exactly. And it is what you spoke to initially. Thank you for that. It is about plants as medicine to enhance our consciousness, to help us reconnect to the planet that we've become so disconnected from in what you call a death economy. And as we reconnect to the planet, suddenly we care about the pollution. Suddenly we care about what we're doing to the rainforest. Suddenly we're awakened to so much more than just how it can help us in our lives, which we may approach it from a very self-centered space of heal me. And then we realize, oh, and I'm supposed to be healing the planet too. I'm supposed to stop the damage, right? Speak please to the death economy, life economy paradigm for us. Well, the death economy is a, an economic system that's based on the perception here again perception that uh, the goal of corporations is is uh, short-term profits regardless of the social and environmental costs and the goal of the rest of us is sort of short-term maximization of our consumption of materialistic goods we don't all buy into that certainly but that's kind of a predominant perception 
And it's created this system that an economic system that's consuming itself into extinction. It's it's using in the short term, using up all the resources that it needs in the long term, including clean air and clean water. It's destroying our environment. It's creating most of the problems we have today: climate change and species extinction and income inequality. And even I'd go so far as to say the pandemic. And we can talk more about that in a, in a minute if you want. The life economy on the other hand, is based on the very long-term human objective of long-term benefits for people and the planet. And out of the 250,000 years or so that we've seen ourselves as humans, that's been our predominant philosophy until pretty recently, blink of the eye in human history, a couple of hundred years, and especially the last few decades, where we've really emphasized the short-term Indigenous cultures still, if they practice their traditional ways, as you experience in the Amazon, look at the long term and our relationship to nature. So the life economy pays people to clean up the pollution, to regenerate destroyed environments, to recycle and to create new technologies that don't destroy, don't ravage the earth, that renovate it instead. We're not talking about going back to the dark ages or living in caves or something. We're talking about a full employment economy, but being employed in different ways to, to, to make the world uh, a better place for us and, and all life upon this planet, to really look at our, our deep, deep connection with, with all life. I love the way you put that. And it's interesting because we're all in a different place in our approach toward this. I think, at least for me personally, I had to heal some of my old wounds. That's why I was guided to work with the plants when I was, and it changed my life. So I, I definitely am an advocate for the power of plants as healing medicine for us and, and awakening our consciousness. But as I heal myself, then I suddenly want to be of more service to the whole. And how can I start to shift the language and the dialogue of, of the conversations that we're having into something that's more sustainable? And in some parts of the world, we're further behind the mark on that than in others. Some, some areas are way ahead in saying, hey, we're, we're doing things for the environment and we want to be more eco-friendly and we want to, and some places haven't even started to have that dialogue yet. So for someone that's listening right now, what do you say to us about where do we start to have those new conversations and make that shift? Well, I think, you know, in general, all of us can really look at what it is we're contributing to in terms of life on this planet. You know, we all talk about the way we shop, buying from this company or that company, buying this or that. But it needs to go beyond that. I think consumer movements are very, very important. So it's important if you, if you decide that you're not going to buy from a company because they, they're not environmentally or socially conscious, uh, you, you, you send them an email and you, and you, or a text or a tweet or whatever it is, and you send that out to all your social networking circles. And you say something like, hey, I love your product, but I'm not going to buy it anymore until you pay your workers in Indonesia a fair wage or clean up the pollution you've caused or whatever it is. Get the word out there. And also... Uh, let the companies that you do choose to buy from, let them know why that, that, that they're doing a good thing. It's, it's not enough just to shop consciously. It's also important that we spread the perception as to why we shop consciously. Again, our reality is molded by our perceptions, and we all are creating perceptions all the time. So it's important to do that. That's kind of a, a general thing. On a specific level, each of us, depending on what we do in life, has a route to take. 
I, I describe in Touching the Jaguar this daily practice we can do, and it's based on asking ourselves five questions. There's a process that's described in the book, but the basis for this is five questions. And the first question is, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? What will bring me the greatest satisfaction, the greatest bliss? What would I really, really want to do for the rest of my life? And I'll give an example. For me, it's write. I love to write. I'm a writer. I love to write. I want to write for the rest of my life. I have a friend who's kind of at the other end of the spectrum. He loves to work with his hands and wood. He's a carpenter. Uh, the second question is, how do I do this in a way that helps others? Because we're all happier if we help others. For me, then, it's writing books that, that talk about, you know, transforming your fear into action to change your life in the world. I write about these things. For my carpenter friend, it's he says, I want to use sustainable materials. I want to make the world a better place through carpentry. And the third question is, what's blocking you? What's the jaguar standing in your way? So that jaguar is, you know, it's, it's it, and the shaman explained to me, when you say touching the jaguar, that means you confront your fears or your blockages. You touch them, and they allow you to change your perception to move forward. And so the third question is, what is the jaguar that's blocking me? And for a writer, it might be, well, I just don't have time to write every day. I, I'm too busy to write every day, and I know I have to write frequently, and I can't do it. For my friend, the carpenter, it might be, well, my clients don't want to spend, they don't want to pay an, a, a higher price for sustainable materials. And then the fourth question is, when I touch that Jaguar, how does it change my perception? And for the writer, it may be, well, listen, I could get up half an hour earlier and write, or I could watch an hour less of television every night or three nights a week and write. And for my carpenter friend, it's, hey, when I touch that Jaguar, it says, tell your clients that the extra price is not a cost. It's an investment. They're investing in their future and the future of, of their children and grandchildren. And then the fifth question is, what actions do I take every day? So a writer writes, and a carpenter does his work with sustainable materials. And he also, he tells, you know, hey, he tells the kids, for example, hey, kids, your, your mom and dad hired me to build this cabinet or this house using sustainable materials, and they did that as an investment in you. It's like paying for some education. They're investing in your future. And so when we ask ourselves these three questions, and again, the first one's, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? The second one, how do I use that to help other people? The third, what's stopping me? The fourth, <laughs> when I touch the Jaguar, when I, how do I change my perception of what's stopping me? Turn that around. And the fifth is, what do I do every day? And as we go through this, those last three questions are going to change frequently. Uh, all right, so I decide I'm going to write, get up half an hour earlier and write every morning. But now the next question is, well, what am I going to write? And then the question beyond that is, what's the first sentence? <laughs> and so on. And each day, as we answer these questions, these last three questions particularly, we move to a higher consciousness and a better understanding of ourselves and a greater satisfaction with our lives. And incidentally, I think my experience with ayahuasca, and I've, probably, I've taken well over a thousand people through ayahuasca journeys over the last 30 years <laughs> in the Amazon. I've only done it in the Amazon. I, that, that's what that's that's what that's what the, the plant consciousness gives you. That's what meditation gives you. And that's what anything that brings you enlightenment, I think, is basically addressing those five questions. I agree with you. And I want to add to that. So that's in if read the book because it's a fabulous story. It's so empowering. It's 
it just lit a fire inside of me. So if you're listening to this, read the book for the story, but buy the book for the resource section. So the resource section also dives deep into those five questions and asks more pivotal questions, like not just who and what am I, but questions like, why was I born at this critical time in history into the family and society that raised me? What a rich question. I I hadn't really pieced all of it back together again until I came across that question from you. Oh, yeah, the childhood that I had mattered, where I grew up mattered, the family I grew up in. It all shaped my perception of this shared dream life that we're, we're having. And so I think that that section is just worth its weight in gold for helping us get to our purpose and passion. Oh, thank you for saying <laughs> that. I, and I, I that was the intent, you know, and I think... You know, after all these years of going through so many different experiences, and I, I think, you know, my own life, I, I, I did some some things that I now look back on as being absolutely horrible as an economic hitman. I, I, I didn't necessarily believe they were horrible at the time, but I'm not sure that matters. Um, and and going through so many different experiences, I think it, it does boil down to if we can really answer those five questions and move forward with a, a daily practice, or it can be once a week, you don't have to do it every day, but, but on a regular basis where we're really, really journeying into this. And we are at this phenomenal time in history. You know, it's a time that's been prophesized by cultures around the world, the Mayan prophecy of 2012, which is a very positive prophecy, unlike what Hollywood wants to wanted to portray <laughs> it as. The Eagle and the Condor, the, the, the Tibetan prophecy of the 14th Dalai on and on and on, that says that we've entered a time when human consciousness has the opportunity to rise to new levels. And I think that's happening. And I think nature's conspiring. And we've talked about the plants. I think this virus, I think this, uh, the, the coronavirus is another one that's pushing us into this new understanding into really looking deep into who and what we are as a species on this planet. Is that what you would like to see on the other side of this pandemic? I wanted to come back and circle back and address that with you. What would you hope that this pandemic will do for us on an individual and a collective basis? Well, yeah, I think for, amongst other things, it's taught us that we, we can change and we must change. I mean, everybody's had to change a lot and it's not always been comfortable. And yet we, we've, we've learned that we can make huge changes in our lives. My goodness, uh, huge. And, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of, of a, there's a shaman lady high in the Andes of Ecuador. Her name is Maria Juana. Great name, huh? Maria Juana uh, <laughs> Yamberla. She speaks. She's a Quechua speaker. She also speaks some Spanish. And I take people to see her, to work with her. And, and a few years ago, she, somebody asked her, so Maria Juana, what, what can we do to save the planet? And she laughed, you know, and she said, the planet's not in danger. Pachamama will survive this. We humans are in danger. And so are a lot of species that we have control over their, their, their destinies, really. But she said, you know, we're like so many fleas, we humans. And she, if Pachamama, Mother Earth, gets too fed up with us, she'll just shake us all off. Yes. And then Maria wanted, yeah, Maria wanted to point it up at this huge volcano that, that, that hovers over her home uh, in Babura. And she said, hey, you remember a few years ago, Imbabura had this huge snow cap on it and ice cap. And it doesn't anymore. Pachamama's twitching. She's letting us know that we got to change. And isn't it wonderful to be alive at this time when we can listen to Pachamama, we can listen to the message. And you know, Cheryl, every time in the last few years when there's been another big hurricane or fires or earthquakes, or these once in 100 year events that seem to happen every year or so now, 
Every time there's been one of those, I thought, well, that's Pachamama's twitching again. But we humans tended to look at that as those as local events. So if I survived a hurricane, I expected the outside world to come to my rescue and bring me water and food and so forth in a few days or maybe a week or two. This pandemic now is not local. It's impacted everyone on the planet. There's no outside world. We're being forced to look at how we are all in this together, not just humans. The pandemic's affecting everything on the planet. And we're really being forced to look at that. And, you know, my hope is that we won't try to return to normal. We'll understand that the old normal is no longer working. It provided amazing things. Historically, we've amazing science and medicine and technology and so forth. But it, it reached its, it, its peak. It's, it's done. And we need to move on to we get out of this death economy, move to a life economy. And I'm hoping this pandemic will help us understand we, we can't and we mustn't return to normal. And if we don't get that message, we try to, to go back to the old ways, the old death economy, uh, Pachamama will hit us with a much stronger one than this, this virus, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced. I agree. I agree. In fact, we had a guest on here a couple of shows back, and she was talking about how the earth does its best to clear its energy when it gets too too built up through these natural disasters, because that's the only thing it's got available to it. But we can make a difference. We can stop creating that situation that it then has to purge or release or clear. So it really is, again, us us living in better harmony with the earth. And I love that you said you, you're not advocating that we go back to the, the dark ages. So how do you see us kind of bringing forward the best of the old ways and the best of what we've come into in this time into some kind of new world? Do you have visions about what that looks like or things that you advocate for that you hope will shift that? Yeah, well, I, I think all the prophecies basically tell us that we're entering a new consciousness. And I love the prophecy of the eagle and the condor, which basically is about how from much of history that the heart, the people of the heart, uh, like the indigenous people who go into passion and, and intuition uh, and the people of the mind, that the eagle peoples w who go into industry and science and, and what we call rationality took two different routes. And then they came together uh, in 1500, around 1500, uh, time of Columbus, and, and clashed. And the, the eagle peoples practically drove the condor people into extinction, that the prophecy said this would happen. This prophecy goes back maybe 3,000, 4,000 years. And it said that would happen. And it did. But it says that 500 years later, Pachacuti in the Quechua language is a 500-year period. And the next Pachacuti, uh, the opportunity would arise for the eagle and the condor to fly together in one sky, to dance, to mate, and to create an offspring, which would be higher consciousness. And that means bringing the heart and mind together, bringing the scientific, the industrial together with the intuitive and the passionate and, and, and the, the environmental. And, and I think We've been heading in that direction. People have been talking about this since the 60s, at least, and then, you know, in the age of Aquarius, and it's gone up and down, up and down. But we, we, I think, you know, even before the pandemic hit, we had a, a, a revival of that, the, the Green New Deal, the idea of conscious capitalism and B corporations. Even in the business community, we were seeing that, and people were getting much more into shamanism and, and so forth. And so my dream is that we will really get it and bring the heart and mind together. We've got a tremendous science 
But we've also got tremendous knowledge that we could call indigenous or we could call the, the wisdom of the heart, our knowing, our knowing that we've been going in the wrong direction. We know this. We know that we've been destroying our environment. We know that we've been disconnecting ourselves from nature, but we're not disconnected. We are not apart from nature. We are a part of nature. And we know that in our hearts, but we've seemed to convince ourselves otherwise. Um, and so now it's time to make that change. And from a practical perspective, it means that adopting lifestyles that are very comfortable, but that are more egalitarian, and we don't need all these extremely rich people and extremely poor people. We don't need uh, to continue to, to have businesses that destroy the environment. We can create businesses that are completely sustainable. We know that. We can do that. And so I, I, I hope that this, this virus and all that's happening today is going to push us in that direction. And it's been doing it. You know, we've seen we've seen huge changes uh, in the last month since this virus hit. You know, for, for one thing, the technology you and I are working with now, people aren't, you know, we're having, I just had a, a, a meeting with over 200 people that to have had this meeting before, people would have had to fly long distances, and, and now we did it all virtually, and it was very effective. Uh, we've learned that we can do things uh, in a more sustainable way. And hopefully we will really, really deeply move in that direction more and more. I agree with you. And yet, you know, the critical side of me says, look at the divide right now where it's at, where the the 1% the or the, as an economist, you can cite these figures better than I can. Where does the economist and the environmentalist, where does that harmonize? Where, how do we shift our economy can we do it in a money-driven society like we're in does capitalism have to go what are your thoughts on that well i without belaboring the point i think the definition of capitalism is a, is a system where the means of production are not owned by the government they're owned by private people and it and it encourages uh cooperation right now we don't really have capitalism uh, yes, the means of production are not owned by the government for the most part, but but the people who own the biggest means of production own the government. <laughs> we know nobody nobody gets elected, a Democrat or Republican, to high office without huge amounts of money, which mainly comes from corporations or the stockholders in corporations. Even if, as 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 President Biden has said, he, I think his average donation is forty five dollars or something, but that's the average, and an awful lot of money comes from very wealthy people, and. And so, um, you know, we, we've seen this situation that, that, um, that, that we're in, but historically, we can see that the successful cultures throughout history have been ones that really honored their relationship to the earth. And we've seen cultures like the Mayan culture of Central America to basically destroy themselves because they they destroyed the environment around them. That, that's historically accurate. And, 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 the, and the Romans did the same thing. We've, over and over and over, we've seen this on smaller scales. Now we're doing it on a global scale. But people around the planet are waking up. There's no question that people are waking up. Everywhere I go and speak, I talk to hundreds, thousands of people who are waking up to the fact we live on a fragile space station, the Earth. And where are the pilots? And we've been piloting it toward disaster. We need to reboot that system. So we're, we're waking up. But whenever there's a, there's a revolution, like a consciousness revolution, any revolution in history, this pushback. The people who represent the status quo try very hard to maintain the status quo. And they do everything they can through fear, through whatever means they can, 
to convince us that we can't change. And that's happening now, too. But, you know, agents of change or revolutionaries, whatever you want to call it, take, take energy from that. I've been a martial artist most of my life, and I learned if you're up against someone who's bigger and stronger than you, you don't try to overpower them. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you use their energy against them. And that's where we're at right now. So, so there's this massive revolution. And at the same time, there's the pushback by the counter-revolutionaries, if you will, by the status quo that's trying to convince us, no, we shouldn't change. And so you've got this, this very small percentage of the population uh, that's, that's, that's really good. Then they get a lot of economic power and they control the media and they control so much and they're trying very, very hard uh, to keep us from changing because they're at the top of the pyramid and they think that that's they think that that's wonderful. Uh, they don't realize that the pyramid is going to collapse one way or another. Thank you for sharing that. You did that so well. And I think it needs to come from someone that that understands how the economy works. I mean, as an economist, you have such a strong voice to say just because being for the environment doesn't mean I'm anti-comfortable living or anti, you know, I think it's going to take a a variety of people to create the solutions that are going to move us through this. But as you say, it begins at the individual level with, I think, realizing that, that this is a dream. It's a shared dream that it's our perception that we are seeing the world through and not just a static world. That was my big aha through the shamanic practices is, wow, this is all just a perception. I thought this was hardcore facts that are the way they are, and it's not necessarily that way. So as we shift the dream, we shift reality as we understand it. Absolutely. The the dream or the perception, whatever word you want to use, totally molds our reality. There's there's no question about that. And and all the great changes in human history, the, 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 the revolutions, if you will, whether it's the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, uh, the American revolution, they've all been successful and they've all happened because people changed their perception or changed their dream. You know, I'm reminded that in 1774, most of the Americans, people in America, I thought the British were invincible. There's no way you could take on the British Army as the biggest army in the world. George Washington remembered 20 years earlier during the French and Indian War, he'd been present when the, the most the powerful of all the British armies under General Braddock was the huge army was defeated by a much smaller group of French and Indians during the French and Indian War. Braddock himself was killed. Most of his officers were killed. It was a massacre. It was a total defeat. And Washington went before the Continental Congress in, in the, around 1774, and he said, you know, they're not invincible. All we got to do is change our perception of warfare. We've just got to hide behind trees instead of standing in big lines facing the other line. <laughs> change perception, you know. And, of course, the British called foul. That's not fair fighting. <laughs> but it worked. And, and, and if you look at every major change in history, the Gutenberg press, you know, it wasn't just that a press came along, it was that people changed their perception of what it meant to be literate, to read and to write and to share information that way, rather than just doing it by oral traditions. You, you know, you can look at any major change in history, and it, it's the perceptions that cause the change, and then the technologies come along and the laws get passed to support the change, the change in perception and so on and so forth. That is a perfect place for us to conclude our conversation. Exactly. Check out the book, 
amazing stuff. Touching the Jaguar, transforming fear into action to change your life and the world. John Perkins, thank you so much for being with us for all the the work that you do in the world, for the nonprofits that you've helped to establish. And it's been such an honor to talk with you today. My pleasure, Cheryl. Thank you for all you do. Please keep up your great work. It's so important, the message that you keep getting out. I really, really appreciate you and your work. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for joining us today. Let me know what you thought of the show at journeyofpossibilities.com. And remember to show us some love at journeyofpossibilities.com slash support so we can keep this free for you show after show. And we'll see you next time on Exploring Possibilities.